You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are up to chapter 7, so I'm aware it's been a pretty intense ride so far through the, the first six seals of judgment. However, we should really expect it to be fairly intense. It is the final stage of this era of earth history. You would expect nothing less. Really, we've been looking at the picture of the glorified Lord standing, preparing to judge the earth as he progressively breaks these seals, and we've seen the effects that that has had on the earth, culminating so far in the sixth seal that we looked at last week, which was the cosmic disturbances across the earth. And now we come to chapter 7, which is, in the scheme of Revelation, it's a break, basically, if I could say that. It's like an interlude. So Revelation is one of these books that's slightly different to how we would usually read like the epistles or something like that. It is roughly chronological, and that is given to us with the the, the sequential judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the, the bowls. However, at certain points during this book, there is like sort of lunch breaks, I guess you could say, where the writer John will give us an expanded look at particular issues and just fill in some information or on different themes and Revelation chapter 7 is one of these interludes. It's like a pause in the chronological book and it looks at the theme really of evangelism and salvation during this period. And this is our, our first one of these interludes. We'll see a few more as we go. And it reminds us of something wonderful. Chapter 7 is a very good chapter. As if you can contrast it with the last few chapters, we saw the war, the plague, the famines, quarter of the earth's population, the cosmic disturbances, the earthquakes, and all of these things, the martyrs that we've been looking at. Now we see Revelation chapter 7, and it reminds us very clearly that our God is a God who saves. That is ultimately one of the things that we want to have at the front and center of our minds as we go through this book, particularly as we are looking at the subject of judgment. Salvation has always been God's desired intent for mankind, not judgment. But because of his holiness and his justice, if salvation is refused, judgment is something that does come. But at every turn through the Bible, we see a God who offers to rebellious mankind his arm of salvation, a way to be saved. He is a God who is rich in mercy, one who is long-suffering, one who is compassionate, one who is also willing to come and be despised, to be rejected, to be insulted again and again by those he loves because he does long for their salvation. That's what it means, he is long-suffering. He's willing to take all of that for our salvation. He is one who holds off on judgment until the last possible moment in every circumstance. We see this throughout the Bible. Even in the midst of times of judgment and rebellion, God still holds out his hand to save. He is a God who saves. Moses sang of it in the book of Exodus, Exodus 15, verse 2. He says, "'The Lord is my strength and my song, "'and he has become my salvation.'" This is my God, and I will praise him. King David cried aloud to it multiple times throughout the Bible. 2 Samuel 22, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my saviour. That's the words of David. Isaiah prophesied about it. Isaiah 63, verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom, with garments of glowing colours from Bosra, the one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So this is the God that we're dealing with here. The psalmist sang about it. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. 
He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The Lord has made known his salvations. Now, interestingly, all of those verses I've just read, if you were reading them in Hebrew, for an example, I'll just use the, the psalm here. It says, the Lord has made known his salvation. That is the term Yeshua in Hebrew. Now, you may have heard me call Jesus by the name Yeshua. That is what Jesus means. That is the, the Hebrew name of Jesus, Yeshua. So this is one of those instances where you get a, a, almost like a word play and it says the Lord has made his salvation known in the Psalms. You could quite rightly translate that the Lord has made his Jesus known as his arm of salvation. That's literally how it could translate. Now how did he make him known? Matthew 1.21, do you remember what the angel said? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua, salvation, Jesus. He is literally, that is his name. And then it goes on, for he will save his people from their sins. His name testifies to his ultimate purpose. A little bit later, Luke chapter 2, when the baby Jesus is presented at the temple, we see that blessed Old Testament saint, that faithful Old Testament saint, Simeon, who takes the baby in his arms and declares, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. If he was speaking Hebrew, my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your Jesus, your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is quite literally the story of salvation. So it's no surprise as we are studying a book called The Unveiling of Jesus Christ that we are still going to see salvation occurring because wherever Jesus goes, salvation occurs. It is his very nature, his meaning and his purpose. He is the story of salvation. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And even in, a, in the midst of judgment, he still has that saving purpose that he comes for. The final words of mankind, at the, his words to mankind, at the very end of the book of Revelation that we will be in at some point. Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost always God's desired intent is for his, the salvation of mankind. So with that in mind, let's get into chapter 7, please. First three verses. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back, to the, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our gods on their foreheads. So he says, After this I saw, and this is again a connection that we have here, this is the next vision that John is shown in this remarkable set of visions that we have in the book of Revelation. He says he saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now you might have already picked up on the fact there is a lot of angelic activity associated with the book of Revelation and we should not be surprised the angelic realm are ultimately God's servants and God's ministers to do his will on this earth, the ones that are serving him. They are his servants, so we see them often involved with the unleashing of different things in this book. And they were standing at the four corners of the earth. Now let me just digress for a slight moment here. It's a shame that I have to do this, but you'll see why. The four corners of the earth, we all understand that. That is a pure figure of speech, yes? It's a figure of speech that is basically trying to explain the entire globe, like we would say the four points of the compass. Now, 
This is not a verse that is teaching that the Bible, that the earth is flat. And I'm going to say that, we laugh, and we, I want to just digress on it slightly, because it's a, one of strange occurrences of this age that the flat earth teaching is gaining huge amounts of traction, primarily among Christians. That is the situation as we have it. And there's a reason for that, I believe. It's because the cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now is extremely conspiratorial and extremely bipartisan. So the way it's working is that people are lurching towards two extremes. The middle ground has kind of gone, that's been taken away, and there are two extremes. On the one hand, everything that the government or that the scientific establishment says is false. And people either go to that side, or on the other hand, everything that the government and the scientific establishment say is absolute truth. And there's no meeting in the middle, and that's why people are on these views. So you have this sort of understanding that everything is a conspiracy. So, you know, the moon landings were fake, NASA's a big government conspiracy, the Earth is, in, in, is actually flat. And this is how the teaching goes. Now, we might, and I have done through this teaching, and I will again, we might critique and take issue with certain things that, say, governments or establishment people present, and we do that because of our biblical convictions. However, we don't want to fall into the trap of, of playing into this role that there are only these absolute two extremes. There is plenty of middle grounds on different issues. You have to be biblical in how you apply these things and do your research and understand. We must not exceed what is written, written and we must not be anti-establishment just for the sake of being anti-establishment. We will clearly be it when it's a biblical conviction of why we do it, but if not, then we don't want to go down that road. Now, I'm mentioning this because, like I say, Flat Earth has become very popular in the last few years. This was illustrated, one of the ministries that I work with, uh, Creation Ministries, they, they had one of their lead scientists write a refutation of the Flat Earth teaching back in 2013. At the time, the article, no one, you know, usually when you write these articles, there's feedback and they, they have to limit the feedback after a while, but there wasn't huge amounts of feedback on this, no negative comments, this was 2013. They did a similar one in 2020, and it caused a riot online. By this stage, seven years later, by this stage, there were hundreds of flat earth proponents, all of them chiming in on the, on the comments, all of them seem to be operating from a Christian perspective, unfortunately. The main reason that CMI said this was basically some very popular YouTube videos that had been going around. And I think, again, it just plays into this moment of how we as a culture absorb and interpret information. We've lost maybe the art of what we would call proper research and we just go to YouTube and things get very popular and because of the way we are, that's basically why this has happened. But I just would caution you again, be very careful with what you watch and read online. It can be a very good source of information bypassing the establishment media, but it can also go very, very wrong. And unfortunately, I see this all the time with Christians sharing things that are clearly false, that are clearly wrong. And that is obviously one of these things that makes fun of this issue. And we see that a lot. So just please be careful as you do this. But in this context, the four corners of the earth is not even re related to that subject. It's clearly a figurative expression trying to describe that the angels are standing across the entire globe is the purview of their, their ministry here. Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. Another angel, the rising of the sun. Your Bible might read from the east there. That's what, it would, it's what the idea, from the east. And you'll notice if, as you read the Bible, often you'll see the east being quite a significant uh, direction. Um, it's usually associated with either the coming or going of the Lord in judgment or in deliverance. So that's why we have that expression here again. Having the seal of the living God. 
Now, a seal was very familiar in the ancient Near Eastern context. It was something that was used to show ownership, to show authenticity, and also used as a security measure. We see this even up to the time of the Roman Empire when they put Herod's seal on the, on the tomb and where they did all this. The sealed scroll is an example of this too. It was just well known what a seal was representing. And this says, verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. So the senior angel gives the command to the other angels not to begin their judgment before this has happened. The bondservants of God are sealed on their foreheads. Now this is what we call the forgotten mark in the book of Revelation. You see, everyone knows about the other mark, don't they? Everyone wants to talk about the other mark that we talk about, the mark of the beast. That is the mark of damnation, you could say, in the book of Revelation. This here is the mark of salvation. This is the Lord's mark, and this is why you actually have the mark of the beast, because what does Satan always do? He tries to counterfeit what the Lord does. So these two things go together. It's a counterfeit. But this is the mark of salvation that we have here. Now, um, we don't know exactly what it is, we do know a little bit more about it. Revelation 14.1 says, They looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So whatever this mark is, it's an identification with the Father and with the Lamb. So it's a believer. It's, this is clearly identifying yourself with Jesus. This is a believing mark. Now, again, as I keep reminding you throughout this book, much of the imagery comes from the Old Testament. So much of the understanding of this is from the Old Testament. Now, most people don't actually pick up on it, but the whole concept of the mark on the forehead is an Old Testament concept. It's not something that was just invented with the mark of the beast. It comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9. It's a time when Jerusalem was about to go down in judgment, which is one of these types of the day of the Lord. And Ezekiel said this, Then the glory of the Lord of Israel went up from the cherub, on which it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the forehead of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Basically that same principle. Judgment's about to come on Jerusalem. I want those who are in Jerusalem, who are righteous and who are grieved by the sin of Jerusalem, put a mark on their forehead, save them they will be spared from this. It's very similar to what we see happening in Revelation now, and this is where it comes from. We notice in the Revelation text that they are called bondservants. This is quite literally slaves or doulos, bondservants um, of the Lord. This is indicating that these are people who are saved. And it shows us that I believe that God is preparing a new group of believers to emerge at this time, which again shows us, like we said at the beginning, God is still saving people. He still has a purpose for salvation at this time. Now, this is different from, I would believe, the church, which has been removed at this point. We see that in this description of the sealing, just for, for the first instance. The church is not sealed in that way with the mark on the forehead. That was f for Israel. We saw that in Ezekiel, and that's why we see it again here in Revelation 7. We are sealed in the church in a different way, we, but we are still sealed. We still have that, or that deposit of our security, of our inheritance. Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14. In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. As a church, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We're sealed by the Spirit, and that is how we know we're going to be with the Lord. It's a down payment on our redemption. Ephesians 4 verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
we have that seal on us. It's the Holy Spirit, the, the blessing of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have that guarantees our eternal future with him. So what we're reading here in Revelation is not actually unusual at all. We see this concept of sealing all throughout the Bible in regards to salvation. So let's look at verse 4, please. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So this is the famous sealing of the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Let me ask you a very simple question. Lay aside any theological baggage that you may have, any preconceived ideas. What does the text say? Who are these people? Very simply, what does it say? They are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now that is very clear to me. It can only be Jewish people. Okay? tribes from the sons of Israel, they're Jewish people. That is clearly what the text says. However, this doesn't stop a lot of people being unable to accept that conclusion. This is a very contested point of theology. For example, you may have had people knock on your door, they always give you these magazines and they always look with these weird pictures on them. They always, you can always tell Jehovah's Witness artwork, it always looks the same, right? You, you know what I mean about that? It, it does. Um, the 144,000, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, are basically the, the bodies of spirit-begotten believers who have the heavenly hope. And then in Jehovah's Witness theology, they have anyone past the 144,000. They, they call that the earthly hope. So there's actually only a select group that are going to be in the 144,000. That's just one of the things that they have. That's outside of the church, even within the church, because of the long-held teaching of what we call supersessionism, replacement theology by its popular name. This is the understanding that God has finished with the Jewish people and the church has taken her place. They cannot just take this text to, to mean what it so very clearly says. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is from the Raymond Brown, Joseph Fitzemeyer uh, biblical commentary, the Jerome biblical commentary series, very popular commentary. He says, the number scarcely refers to Jewish Christians, rather it stands for all members of the church, the true Israel. And you see what he's done here, There's, that's just not remotely what the text said, but because of his preconceived understanding, you ha they have to change what it says. This is another one, this is G.E. Ladd. Now if you don't know G.E. Ladd, George Eldon Ladd, if you're a bit of a theology buff, you'll know his name. He was a very, very popular evangelical theologian. The whole con you've ever, if you've ever heard the, the phrase, the kingdom is now, but not yet, um, most people just absorb that teaching without questioning it. That comes from George Eldon Ladd. He's a premillennialist, but he's a post-tribulationist, if that makes sense to you. And a lot of people who don't like the pre-tribulational view that I hold will use George Eldon Ladd as, as their authority. Not everything he wrote, you know, I agree with a lot of what he writes, but not some things. But this is what he says about this verse. Perhaps John meant by this irregular listing of the 12 tribes, I'll explain that in a moment, that Israel is not the literal Israel. The 12 tribes were irregularly listed to show that the true Israel is not the literal Israel, but the church. So this is just a classic example of what I'm talking about. 
they don't allow that future for Israel and they have to put the church in its place and then you start getting all this understanding spiritual Israel, true Israel, literal Israel, what's what. It's just an overcomplication of the text. It's a very clear example of how preconceived theology influences our interpretation of the text. I advise you just to stay with the simple meaning of the text. It very clearly said they're sealed from the sons of Israel. That's always and only ever one group of people in the Bible. And this is the stick. We see this a lot in Revelation. It makes perfect sense if the church has already been removed. It makes perfect sense in light of the typology from the book of Ezekiel that I've already read to you. So 12,000 from each tribe. Now many will, again, immediately argue that there are no longer 12 tribes. Uh, You may have heard of the teaching of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Some people like to say that 10 of the tribes were lost and they make all sorts of fanciful explanations. The Native Americans are the lost tribes of Israel. There's a whole strand of teaching called British Israelism that taught that uh, the, the British people are, in fact, the true lost tribes of Israel. And if you go back to the 16th century when uh, there was a strong Protestant element in this country and the, the whole identity of England was founded actually upon, was, was based on the idea that we are the chosen elect nation, similarly as that spread across the world. It's a very unusual way to look at some of these things, mixed in with truth, with a bit of error, and we see this a lot. However, historically it's not true that the ten lost tribes, they were simply dispersed across different places in Israel. Now it is true historically that tribal identifications were lost after their records were lost with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The only tribe you can identify today of the Jewish people is the tribe of Levi. If you see a Jewish person and his surname is Levi or Kohen, which means priest, then it's obvious they're from the tribe, the priestly tribe of Levi. Other than that, we don't know. But quite simply, we don't know. But for God, I don't really think that's a problem, keeping a track of those sorts of records. It's not really an issue. The tribes are still there at some point, but he will, and he knows who is who. And at this point, we see them brought back together by this ceiling. Now, the quote we read from George Ladd there, he, he said this irregular list. So he made this point about the list here in Revelation 7 being irregular. Now what's he referring to there? He's referring to the fact that that list of all the tribes omits the tribe of Dan. So one of the tribes of Israel is the tribe of Dan. If you read that list again, you'll notice that it's not in there. So how can there still be 12? This is the question that people often get. Well, you have to remember there are actually more than 12 tribes of Israel. Because you remember Joseph, he had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and Jacob adopted them to become his own. So there are actually 12, 13, there were more tribes of Israel. So whenever you read a list and there's only 12, you know that one is missing. And quite often the context will there'll be a very important reason why one is missing. So this is not really an irregular list. It's just another different list that we see throughout the Bible. But let's look at it in a little bit more detail. So in this list, Judah is listed first. Now that is novel, that is new, never before do we see Judah listed first in this sort of a listing. However, it's very fitting for the book of Revelation. Because do you remember what we studied, I think, Revelation 4 and 5? Who are we dealing with here in this book? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Also, if you go back again to the Old Testament, as you always need to with this book, you'll find that when the Israelites left Mount Sinai after receiving the covenant and becoming a nation, it was Judah that was the first tribe that was to lead them to the promised land. So it's no surprise that now as we see the lion of the tribe of Judah preparing to come not to the promised land but to the whole earth and the promised land, we see the tribe of Judah mentioned first again, perfectly fitting with the book of Revelation, not in any way irregular. Now what about Dan being omitted? 
It's a little more interesting. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and it says this, so, there, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman, a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to serve the gods of the nations. There will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel. So there seems to be a command here against idolatry that could jeopardize your tribal status amongst the children of Israel. Now, if you know the history of Israel, Dan is the tribe that introduced idolatry to Israel. If you remember the story, they picked up their own personal Levite, their own personal priest, they took him away from Jerusalem, they brought him up north, and they had him design and set up a false system of worship, and this place of worship eventually became home to one of the golden calves, and it was in fact a completely uh, alternate centre of worship to Jerusalem, except obviously it was worshipping idols and it was an apostate thing going on there. And that introduced idolatry to Israel. So that may very well be the reason why we don't see Dan here listed in this tribal listing because of what happened there. However, sticking with the theme that we mentioned at the beginning, that God is a God who saves, God is a God who forgives, God is a God who holds out mercy, we really see that ultimately grace and mercy triumph. You go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 42, which is a time dealing with this, the kingdom age, where you get a list of the tribes again, and Dan is the very first tribe listed there in that list. Again, just testimony to the saving grace of God, that Eve doesn't matter, the Lord can save you if you repent of anything. This is again what this book is really about. Now let's look at the next section, please, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. So after these things, again, that connecting phrase that we see in Revelation, and it seems to really imply that there's a slight cause and effect between the first and second half of this chapter. The arrival of the 144,000 Jewish believers now sealed is the means by which God accomplishes another purpose of this final age, and that is a final reaping of people to save, a final harvest, the very last opportunity to accept the grace of God at this time. John sees an uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, tongue and people. Notice this is a diverse multitude from different ethnicities and tribes and languages. This again clearly shows us this is not the same as the 144,000 who are from the tribes of Israel. These are a separate group. And this is actually what Jesus predicted. You go back to Matthew 24, verse 9. He says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by the nations. And he goes on, lawlessness will be increased, people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, you're stick to the chronology there. That's not actually talking of the gospel age like we would talk now. I believe the gospel of the kingdom there is referring to this very final period of history, the tribulation, as Jesus said, and it's probably more likely speaking to the ministry of what these 144,000 people have as taking the gospel to the ends of the earth during this final era, and then the end will come. That's exactly how Revelation charts the chronology of it. So we see, even in the midst of this time, the gospel of salvation is still held out. These people have white robes. 
illustrative of the garments of salvation we've talked about before. And they have palm branches. Now, this is a very fitting scene that we have right here. The palm branch was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it was one of the plants that they had to use at this time for their celebrations, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is what's known as the Kingdom Feast. It's a feast associated with the time that we're reading about at the end of Revelation, the Kingdom. Why? Because Zechariah 14 tells us that when Jesus is here ruling, all the nations will come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And because of that, the palm branch became a national symbol of liberation for Israel. You'll find it in the Maccabean area, you'll find it on their coins, but ultimately it's pointing to the liberation under Messiah is what it's really getting at here. Just as the waving of palm branches was seen when the king first came to Jerusalem, do you remember when he rode in humbly on a donkey? They picked up palm branches and they started shouting Hosanna to the son of David. That's what we saw at his first coming. Now we are about to see his second coming. So it's no surprise that we again see a multitude of faithful people waving palm branches in anticipation of the king's soon return to Jerusalem. Just as it was in the first coming, it'll be again in the second coming, except he won't be coming humbly on a donkey. He'll be coming in power on a white horse but the palm branches will still be there. And just as the people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, which is literally salvation to the son of David, we see here that they cry out salvation to our God. Very similar phrase, who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The salvation here is attributed to the father and the lamb. So we see again this wonderful picture of the throne room now in Revelation. And I want again you to notice how often we see this, the throne room the sovereign throne room of the universe is one of the central themes of this book, and it really should be. It's a scene of worship. We see the angels again. We see the elders again. We see the living creatures, and they are all prostrating themselves before the throne, and they're saying, Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might to be, be to our God forever and ever. You might recognize that a lot of songs use that, use that phrase in their lyrics. Notice again, how many different blessings are there there? It's a sevenfold blessing. Do you remember at the beginning we talked about the, seven, the number seven in the book of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, sevenfold blessing that we see here again and again. Verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So now we see, almost like the elders kind of checking in with John here, to, just to make sure he's following what is going on. And he says, who are these, John? Who are these? Where do they come from? And then you see John, kind of like if you know, when you remember when you were at school and the teacher asked you a question, and you kind of think you might know the answer, but you, you don't want to commit to it, because if you get it wrong, it's actually worse than saying nothing, so you give a very non-committal answer, or you don't used to say, I don't know. And John kind of does that here. He doesn't answer, he just says, do you know who they are? And that's probably the right answer in this instance. You don't want to, want to get it wrong in front of the angel, do you? But, and, the, and he says, yes, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. And this is a very important little bit of text here. The, the, in the Greek, this is a present participle. It could be translated, they are continually coming out of the great tribulation. The idea is one of continued repetition, most likely as a result of the ongoing persecution during the Great Tribulation, the idea is that this great multitude is still arriving on the scene continually. That's why it can, it's said to be uncountable, because it's continually increasing. Now, for me, this rules out this being the rapture. 
uh, as I mentioned last week, there are some people that, that like to place this great multitude as being the result of the rapture. The rapture was an instantaneous single event. The Greek here does not say that. This is a continual event that continues happening. It's a different group of people. It says they've washed their robes with the blood of the lamb, making them white. Now, this is a very interesting expression because we know you put blood on a white robe, you do not get white robes. You see, the idea is it's supposed to be sort of counterintuitive to highlight a particular concept that the blood of the lamb is what makes us clean. It's referencing that verse we studied in Isaiah a few weeks back in Wednesday night studies. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be white like wool. The thing that saves people still in this time and always is, is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is that that washes our robes and makes us clean. It is that that atones for our sin, that cleanses us, that makes a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. In our age, that is equally true in this age as it has been for all ages. And we see that here in the Great Tribulation. God is still saving people by the blood of the Lamb. This is why we see in Revelation 5 the Lamb as it was slain in the centre of the throne. Remember I said the throne is the centre of the book of Revelation. It's no surprise that the text specifically says at the centre of that throne is a lamb as it has been slain. Because it is that slain lamb, the blood of that lamb, that saves us. The blood of the lamb won the victory. Let me read to you a hymn. Precious, precious blood of Jesus, shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for thee and me. Oh, the precious blood of Jesus, shed on Calvary. Oh, believe it, oh, receive it, it's for you and me. Though thy sins are red like crimson, deep in scarlet glow, Jesus' precious blood shall wash thee white as snow. Precious blood that hath redeemed us, all the price is paid. Perfect pardon now is offered, peace is made. Precious blood, by this we conquer in the fiercest fight, sin and Satan overcoming by its might. Oh, the precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary. Oh, believe it, oh, receive it, it's for you and me wonderful old hymn there that really sums up everything I'm talking about now, the precious blood of Jesus. Let's look at verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will, no longer, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them. Now, for this reason, verse 15, for this reason they are before the throne of God. So, what reason? What's it referring back to? How are they before the throne of God? This is a very pivotal point here. For this reason, why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is the only thing that can get you to the throne of God. Okay, it doesn't, not, not going to church, not understanding a lot about Jesus, not knowing a lot about religions, not being baptised, not being confirmed, on and on that list can go, only the blood of the Lamb. It was only the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites' home of the Passover lamb that stopped the angel of death killing them. It's only the blood of the lamb that can stop that for you too. And this is what God is offering. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what his very name means. It is Yeshua, it is salvation. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to shed his blood for the remission of sins. This is what the story, the history of the world is all about, the blood of the lamb. That's why we sing that song, O Precious Blood. We would never sing that about any other sort of blood. Blood is quite grotesque in many ways for other things, but the blood of the lamb is powerful and it's precious. For this reason, God, and it says, he will tabernacle with them. He, will, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Again, tabernacle is one of these 
theological terms that's worth noting whenever you read it in the New Testament. It's the word that means to dwell with. This is how Jesus is said to come to this earth, to tabernacle among us, to dwell among us. And it shows the desire of God. God's desire is always to dwell with his people. This is what he said in the Old Testament. This is what he always desired to do. Sin hindered that, but God's desire has always been to dwell with his people. This is why he sent his son, that he could make that possible. That's his desire, and the desire of God's people should also be to dwell with our Lord. Psalm 27, verse 4, David says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The desire of God is to dwell with his people. The desire of his people is to dwell with our God. That is a very nice summary of eternity of the Christian message in many ways. And we see a glimpse of the eternal state here too with these passages that the sun won't beat down, there'll be no more tears and no more crying. Ultimately, when you envisage God dwelling with his people and his people dwelling with him in that intimate way, you have to remove everything that is not from God. Everything that is a result of the curse, that is a result of Satan, everything that is a result of the corruption of sin. We see this at the end of the book of Revelation, which is referenced by this text we just read. Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away. That is the future that God accomplishes for us. That is what the cross purchased for us. That is what the resurrection secured as a victory for us. That is what the sealing of the Holy Spirit guarantees for us. That is where we will be for eternity. Now that is why the Christian message is so powerful for many people. Verse 17, let's just finish up. For the Lamb in the centre of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice again, the lamb in the centre of the throne. The lamb is the central figure of heaven. He is the central figure of earth. He is the central figure of the entire cosmos, universe, and all things outside and above any, anything. He is the centre of everything. We see the true shepherd here. All the false shepherds are gone by this point. Those ones that led astray, those ones that caused corruption to the sons of Israel, those ones that the prophets so often spoke against, that's all gone now. By the end of this book, we've seen the beast, the false prophet. They're all bound, they're put away, they're all gone. We have nothing but the true shepherd. And the good shepherd says that like a good shepherd does, he leads them to the water of life. Just like he did with the Samaritan woman. That's what this is picturing in the physical, when he was here in his incarnation, in his humility, he was still doing the same thing. He sat with that downcast woman and he offered her the waters of life. This is exactly what he was going to be doing for all eternity. This is Jesus then and now, the wonderful Lord that we serve. His desire is still the same. He wants us to be saved so that he can dwell with us. That is ultimately the summation of what we have here, so that he can dwell with us. In order to get to that state, we have to go through the process of pilgrimage and wandering that we are dealing with now as he rescues us as the saving mission of the gospel goes forth. Even in the final stages, as the judgment is coming on the earth, as those usurpers are being dealt with, as the high-handed people who stand against God, rebel against his kingdom, are being dealt with, on the other side of that coin, there is still this offer of salvation in these times. It will be much more difficult 
it'll most likely result in being killed under this stage. So really, that is why Paul says to us, now is the day of salvation. Don't bank on waiting to a future time. If you have heard the gospel, if you've understood Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, who died for your sins, who was buried and who rose again, you have a responsibility to accept that gospel now, and then you will be part of the future that we've just looked at, where there is no effect, no sin, no curse, no death, anything more except God dwelling with his people in his beauty and us dwelling with him. That is the story of Revelation. That is, in fact, the story of the whole Bible. So yes, it will be possible to be saved in those final dark days, but it is infinitely better to accept the offer of salvation of the gospel now. And that is what we do. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.